Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Good morning, everyone. So glad that you're here this morning. Good morning to all of you and uh, listening and watching online, especially to our north site up in Port Perry. We want to say, express a good morning to you also. Well, it's Christmas time because Costco has declared it. And so is... Uh, uh, whether you like that or not, it's out, you know, Pier 1 the same, all the decorations are out, and you all know again and again that I have an addiction problem when it comes to Christmas. And yet, I need to do a confession as I begin my message this morning. There is actually one thing about Christmas I cannot stand, and some of you are like in shock. How can this be true of, of our pastor, John Thompson? Well, here it is. I hate building toys. Anyone want to say amen with me about this? When I start shopping, now what is in my mind is, how long will this take me to build for one of my children? And realizing there are three of them, it gets exponentially worse. I am a happy elf. No, I'm an angry, bitter angry elf at all. Now, it's worse than Ikea. Do you know what I'm saying? Ikea is bad, but these are way worse. You buy a toy if you have children or grandchildren, and it's the size of your hand, and you open... Well, first of all, opening the package is such a traumatic thing. I lose all the fruit of the Spirit right there when I'm trying to just open the package. I get the package open, and there should be a small instruction. No, it's 1.5 million different instructions in six languages, which are not my language. Finally, when I build it, there is no what? Battery. Are you joking me? You can't even get me a battery as I am trying to give joy to my children. See, I just want a simple... This is what I want for Christmas this year. A very simple toy that opens up. It's already... The package just literally opens. It's built. There's a battery. And I say, ho, 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 and we're done. A plus B equals C. Now, the reason why I talk about that this morning is as many of us this morning who have been Christians for a very long time, some of us who have just become Christians, a large group of you who are seekers among us asking, and even some of you who are sort of the skeptics here, all of us much of the time feel like the Christian faith is like trying to open and build that toy. It is so complicated and so burdensome, and there seems to be so many distractions and things, and you have to understand so much, either you lose sight of actually what you're trying to do, and or you feel, especially if you're a seeker or a skeptic, you can't even find the toy you're trying to identify. And so what I want to do today, as we're now in week two out of our series, Spirit Move, is get back to the very simplistic basics, an A plus B equals C moment, where by the end of this message, every single person within the sound of my voice We'll be able to access and understand, and even I'll give you an opportunity to accept this in the most simplistic of ways. Now, we're in the book of Acts, and like we found out last week, a man named Luke wrote Luke and Acts. He was a medical doctor who became a follower of Jesus, and he ends up writing the book of Acts to a man named Theophilus. Now, like I shared last week, Theophilus most people believe was a person who lived in the Roman region and was part of the middle class. Many other scholars actually believe he was a bureaucrat or a high Roman official. 
But what's most important, what, what most believe is this, that Theophilus was either a brand new Christian or was actually not a Christian at, at all. He was a seeker or actually a possible enemy of the faith, a growing skeptic. And goal, the, Luke's goal of writing the book of Acts was to give Theophilus a more accurate information to, to historically root and explain our faith no matter where you're coming from. So like I shared last week, this series is amazing for all of us because whether again you've believed for years, you've just come to faith, whether you do not have faith but you have questions or you don't believe at all of this, Luke's intention is to show us the simplistic reality of of our movement. Let's pick up the story from last week. We're in Acts chapter 2, by the way. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. The spirit move has just begun. Jesus, after his physical resurrection from the dead, promised his followers that power from heaven to do the impossible would be given to each one of them. And it's summarized in Acts 1.8 where he said, but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, as we found out last week, a group of people gathered after Jesus went into heaven and included Jesus' mom. His brothers had now come to believe in him. They did not believe in him before the resurrection. They thought he was crazy, demon-possessed, and dangerous. But when they met their dead brother alive, things changed. And also the original community was gathering, and they're praying, asking God for this power. And then suddenly, it took place. It reads like this in Acts 2, 1. When the feast of Pentecost came, they were together in one place, and without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, a gale force, and no one knew where it was coming from. It filled the whole building, and then like a wildfire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks, and they started speaking in a number of different languages as the Spirit prompted them. There were many Jews staying in Jerusalem just then, devout pilgrims from the whole known world. When they heard the sound, they came on the run, And when they heard, one after another, their own mother languages or tongues being spoken, they were all thunderstruck. They couldn't for the life of them figure out what was going on, and they kept saying, aren't these Galileans? How come we're hearing them talk in our own mother tongues? Their heads were spinning, they couldn't make heads or tail of any of it, and they talked back and forth, confused, what in the world is going on here? And some others joke, they're drunk on cheap wine. And so this is the moment, moment where God breaks in, and now the question is, what is about to be said? What would be the explanation, the simple explanation of this crazy, life-altering, historically accurate event? Is this God? Is this the devil? Is this some mass form of hysteria? Is this exaggeration? Have they had too many tequila shots before breakfast? Like, what is taking place? Well, Peter stood up with the eleven, and he begins to address the crowd. Now, before we get into the very first Christian message ever preached, we need to stop and ask ourselves this question. Do you know who Peter is? And do you know what's happened to him up to this point in his story? Peter was a fisherman from the northern shore of Galilee, from the backwater in his own country, which was considered the backwater of the Roman Empire. So Peter is a nothing from the nothing region in a country considered nothing by the known world. (coughs) Peter was not formally educated at all, maybe grade two, max. Peter later was so angry that the Romans had taken over his country, he became a zealot. That's an insurgent against Roman rule. To some Jews, he was a hero, but to most Jews and the Romans, he was an extremist. He was a religious terrorist willing to kill people in the name of God. 
And yet, personally, he was actually called by Jesus to follow him. Later, within three years, Jesus made Peter, this dangerous religious zealot, the leader of the 12 apostles or disciples. He was the first to understand and confess Jesus as the Messiah. Peter tried walking on water. He was one of the few at the transfiguration. And actually, when Jesus was about to be arrested, Peter got his old history on, pulled out a knife, and cut a man's ear off trying to defend Jesus. Yet within a few hours of Jesus being defended by Peter, Jesus goes into trial and Peter disowns Jesus publicly when people ask him, are you a follower of that guy? He curses him, disowns him, and he rejects Jesus full out. Peter and Judas, if you know the story, are literally walking down the same path, but in the end hope makes the difference. After Jesus' resurrection, Jesus personally met with Peter and had a whole conversation with him about his rejection and restored him completely, made Peter the primary leader of the new church, and it's this speaker that's now going to address this whole crowd. See, here's what we've got to get at the beginning of this. God takes a nothing in the world's eyes and shows him love, shows him holiness, shows him life, allows him to make mistakes, and gives him forgiveness and then empowers him. So here's the point. If Peter could be used by Jesus to change the world, any of us could be used. Amen to that? So now Peter stands up on a side street in Jerusalem filled with thousands and thousands of devout Orthodox Jew pilgrims, and he stands up and he addresses and begins to define, this is what's going on. He says in verse 14 in chapter 2, fellow Jews, And all of you who live in Jerusalem too, let me explain this to you. You listen carefully to what I have to say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now in this culture, the first meal, breakfast, was at ten. And Peter says sarcastically and half-joking, look, boys, ladies, we're not drunk. You know it. It's only nine in the morning. We're all Jews here, right? Or at least converts to Judaism. Hello? This is what, for generations, we as a people, as a religious movement, have prayed for, hoped for, because our God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, has said that this was going to take place, and we're already missing it three minutes in? Didn't God promise Isaiah and Ezekiel, and especially Joel, that there would be an unusual outpouring, a spirit move that would create a new movement within us as a people? He says, let me remind you, let me quote Joel chapter 2 to you. Now remember the crowd. The crowd are all devout religious Jews who memorize the scripture as part of their devotion. So in Acts chapter 2 verse 17, he quotes Joel 2. In the last days, God said or says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Verse 21, and anyone who calls upon the name of Yahweh, God, the God of Israel, will be saved. Now before we keep going, let's do a side note. Do you see that phrase, in the last days? If you're one of those Christians that keeps buying the new book on the last days, stop it. You're wasting your money. Why? Because what is being declared here is this. The last days have been around since the giving of the Spirit 2,000 years ago. See, in Jewish Christian theology, the last days doesn't mean the next 20 years. It means the last literal run of history. 
We do not believe, like our secular friends believe, in the myth of non-ending progressive history. We believe that history has a literal beginning and an actual end because we believe history is created by and is being orchestrated by God himself. And since Jesus has come and he died and rose again and is now in heaven, and since the Holy Spirit has been given permanently in normal people's lives, we have been living in the end days. The sign of the last days is that God places his Holy Spirit in people permanently. Now, the image that God gave Joel hundreds of years before this moment is a powerful, evocative an evocative image that really brings home actually the condition of us and the amazing love of God. This is written in a desert-like community. Now, I don't know if you've been to a desert before, but if you have, you know that they tend to have very short, rainy seasons. And so the images of a, a torrential downpour for a very short period of time on a desert-like condition that is parched and barren and filled with death. But in a moment when the rain comes in an uncontrollable way, the desert is filled suddenly with water. Out of that water is life. So here's the point that God was saying to Joel and then through Peter. This is our condition as human beings. No matter, and remember the audience, even you who are the most religious people on earth, we are broken, we are barren, We are parched, we are spiritually dead, and we need rain that we cannot invent ourselves, come from heaven, down into us, and begin to rebirth Eden in the human heart all over again. So this is the heartbeat, and this is the prophecy of Joel. Now, why is this such a big deal? Well, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was only given for periods of time on certain people. Usually the Holy Spirit was given only to kings and to prophets. He was selectively given. But now, as it was promised in Joel and Ezekiel and throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit will be given to any single person who trusts in the one who represents him, Jesus Age, gender, social status, your skin color, economic background, economic levels swept aside because God will permanently give his spirit to anyone who wants to be saved. Now back to Theophilus and back to us. Because remember, Theophilus is a Roman person, not with a Jewish lens. Many of us are sitting here going, okay, John, Holy Spirit, Old Testament, Jewish theology, so much of this seems, again, like the package is really complicated. But to the Orthodox Jew hearing this for the first time, there would be no translation needed. They would begin to understand the implications literally as Peter begins to speak them. But they would be asking the question, well, what does this have to do with us as Jews, and what does this have to do with salvation? And Peter's answer which would have been scandalous and shocking to them, is this. The evidence of the Spirit's move is real, but if you want to understand it, you don't start with us, and you don't start with the Spirit. We need to talk about Jesus. Verse 22, remember, he's still standing in the middle of the street. Men of Israel, so my fellow Jews, Hebrews, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, was a man accredited by God to you through miracles and wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourself know. Now, by the way, the name Jesus was very common back then. It's the name Joshua. And so he makes sure that you, the whole crowd realizes what Jesus, not Jesus your neighbor, not Jesus your uncle, not Jesus your grandfather, Jesus from Nazareth. 
And he says, Jesus was a real man who really lived, and you've all heard about him. And then he says this, and many of you, watch this, actually watched him do all this because you live in Jerusalem. Jesus was a man, but not a normal man. He was accredited by God through miracles. Jesus healed and delivered with an authority we have never seen. He healed blind people and deaf people, those who would never be able to speak, suddenly they could speak. Those who'd been bleeding with medical, he healed them. Even people that were dead for days, he brought back to life. He cast out demons like it was nothing. And so he claimed... Things like he could forgive sins. He, P- Peter's remembering things like if Jesus saying, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God is upon you. The point of Peter is you just can't dismiss him because all his healings and all his signs and all his power gifts were evidence that God was actually working through him and actually among us and the kingdom of God is here and the powers of the coming age were now at work in the now. See, every healing, by the way, and every deliverance now and then acts like a flare like a sign. They are taste. They are the appetizer for the main meal that's about to come. They're evidence of what the new heavens and new earth are going to be like 24-7. Actually, every miracle is a mini summary of Revelation 21-4, where Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Miracles in the now are that power showing up here to give us hope of what is coming. Now, Peter's not done. He keeps pointing to Jesus and says he wasn't just a real man. He, he was really here, real humanity, and we all know he did miracles. We were there, and so were most of you. But then he takes him behind the curtain to see the whole show. He says, this man was handed over to you, he points at the crowd, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, And you, think about this, and you with the help of the Romans, wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. So Jesus' life and Jesus' coming and Jesus' death was God's plan all along. Oh yes, he said the Romans and some of our Jewish religious leaders and actually, actually a lot of you got him killed. Yeah, he was guilty of treason according to the Romans because he claimed to be a king and not Caesar. And the religious leaders said he he was a liar because he claimed to forgive sins and said he was equal with the Father. And so they accused him of blasphemy. But they were thought they were in charge, but actually God outplayed them all. And actually God outplayed you. Because actually this was God's plan all along for this to happen. You thought you were in charge. No, no, God was in charge. Later, Paul would write the exact same thing in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now let what Peter and Paul actually say sink in. God gave over Jesus. Before the beginning of time, God within himself decided to give himself for you. Salvation that is free cost heaven everything, everything. God the Father gave Jesus up, gave him over to deal with our sin. Good Friday, all the terrible events that took place. The killing of Jesus was the plan of God to bring deliverance to the world. Now, I've said this before. Let me say it again. Is this some weird form of cosmic child abuse? No, because Jesus himself is equal with and is God. For God so loved the world that he sent himself that whoever believes in Jesus who is God will have eternal life. But see, this brings home the real heart of the gospel. As one wrote, if God was not holy and just, there would be no demand for a son to suffer and die. 
And if God was not loving, there would be no willingness for his son to suffer and die. But since God is both just, holy, judge, and loving and caring, his love is willing to meet the demands of his justice. Anyone want to say amen to that? So, back to verse 23, Peter, this grade two Galilean fisherman with the wrong accent, with no education formally, is now lecturing this whole group of people, and he points, and you can imagine, he says, and you, you with the help of the Romans, you put him to death by nailing him on a cross. See, Peter is actually speaking to a group which included vast amounts of people that were in the crowd calling for Jesus to be crucified. And yet he's now turning around saying, you've actually murdered the Messiah that you have been waiting for your whole life. And yet if you step back, the Bible says every human is guilty of putting Jesus on the cross. And why this is so important is in the very first Christian message of all time, the Bible calls out our condition and will not play down sin. Now, as Peter is saying this, I'm sure the temperature in the crowd is going up. But I love this next verse. See, here's what Peter says. All the statements, all the sentences passed by human leaders, all your crowd calling out, crucify him, all the decision of human courts, religious and also civil under the Roman occupation, all the wrong religious understanding and preaching is now rejected and it's reversed and it has been rescinded. But God, don't you love when the Bible says that? But God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it is impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. And Peter stands up and says, physical resurrection is the evidence that we are right and you are wrong. And, and we found out at Easter, this is not resuscitation. This is not the walking dead, some zombie-like, no, no. It is resurrection. And here's what we've got to again get, because this is the simplicity of the gospel. Resurrection is an all-or-nothing deal. It's all in or all out. It's a total sum game. We as Christians unashamedly root ourselves in the history of this idea, and we declare it is not a myth. We don't run from history because we believe the resurrection of Jesus is an actual, historical, verifiable event. Our whole movement since day one is based on the idea that Jesus was really here historically, really did some really crazy cool things, was really killed, was really dead, not sort of dead, really dead, and then physically rose from the dead. Like I shared last week at Easter, we did a whole series called Smoke and Mirrors, where we asked ourselves the question, can an intellectual, uh, rational person who takes history seriously actually come to this conclusion? And as we walk through it as a community, we came to the same place that Peter did and Luke did. And, and, and yes, we actually believe Jesus literally came back from the dead. Now, I want you to go back to that verse for a second. I had never caught this before. Do you see that idea of agony of death? Now, this comes from the idea or the image of a woman in labor. And I've never caught this in all my years of reading this, and it's so beautiful. This is how it really reads in the original language. Death was in labor and didn't want the baby to come out, but could not hold back the baby because the, sa the pain was so strong, and so death had to deliver Jesus back to the world. Isn't that amazing? And so the point is this. Death could not stop the work of God through Jesus. Now at this point in the crowd listening, remember the crowd, there would be mass confusion because the Jewish audience would have never heard this before. 
They had been taught their whole life one thing, no matter their background. They had been taught that God was going to send the Messiah, and the Messiah would show up on the scene, and he would, using military strength and angels and people's armies, would rise up and rid Israel of all the occupiers, so the Romans. He'd cleanse the temple. Any Jews that were not faithful would be killed, and they would restore the kingdom of Israel politically, militarily, and religiously all at once, and Jesus, that Messiah, whoever he would, would show up, and he would never be touched. He'd just wipe out all his enemies. Now, Peter stands up and says, the Messiah actually suffered on a cross and died. That's like, as one scholar said, saying that you can fry ice. Think about that. When I say fry ice, you go, that is impossible. And see, that's the point. To the Jewish mind, they're going, this is wrong because this isn't supposed to happen to the Messiah. Then Peter stands up and says, hold on. Whoever taught us that this wasn't supposed to take place? He said, David, our greatest king, right? A man after God's own heart, wrote the Psalms, the one that God promised his line would change the world. He predicted this. And then right in the middle of the sermon, he quotes a psalm they all would have known. He quotes Psalm 16, and he says, look, David said this about him. I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I'm not going to be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let my Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. So Peter's liked his audience. Hold on. David was a prophet and our best king. And David said this, but David's dead, right? I mean, actually, just down the road, and it's literally just down the road, David's tomb's there. Most of us have gone to it. You can go to it later if you want to. So if David wasn't talking about himself... Who in the world was he talking about? And Peter says to this crowd, my fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that our patriarch David was, has died, is buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he'd place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. Here's what Peter's saying. Jesus fits the bill. He fits the pattern. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy. Jesus was dead. And by the way, most of you know about it because you were there when he was crucified or you heard about it. But then we're here to tell you he's not been abandoned to the dead. His body didn't see decay. He's alive. And David was predicting Jesus of Nazareth hundreds and thousands of years earlier. And then Peter says, verse 32, God, Yahweh, the, the same God that met Moses in the burning bush, the same God that walked with Adam and Eve, the Jewish God, has raised this Jesus, not your uncle, not this Jesus, to life. And by the way, me and the 11 behind me and the 150, including his mom who's right over there, we're all witnesses to it. We are witnesses. Day one, very first Christian sermon, Peter says this is real. This is an actu actual happening. This is not invented. We're not making up some story to make, make us feel good. This is not borrowed myth. Now, let me just stop again and say this to this modern crowd. As we hear this claim today in 2016, again, as a modern person, I know some of you, your internal reaction is, well, you know, John... 
2,000 years ago, people didn't have iPhones. They didn't have WikiLeaks, you know, or Wikipedia. And then they have the internet. They didn't have psychology like we do and all our medical advances. So honestly, John, they're just stupid. They're gullible people. They believe anything. No, stop it. Your chronological snobbery is unfounded. Because actually the truth is ancient people weren't stupid. And like I shared actually in our Smoke and Mirrors series, I love when Tim Keller, writing his book, The Reason of God, wrote this. He said in his landmark book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, the great scholar Richard Buckingham marshals so much historical evidence to demonstrate that at the time that the Gospels and Acts were being written, there were still multiple, numerous, well-known living eyewitnesses to Jesus' teaching, life, and events. They had committed them to memory. They remained active in the public life of the church. And throughout their lifetimes, they served as ongoing sources and guarantors of truth to those account. And if you read the book, I'd encourage you to do, Buckingham uses evidence even within the Gospels to show the Gospel writers were so concerned about this, they would name by name people to assure their readers of the authenticity and invite people to go ask the living witnesses if it was true or a lie. And Peter stands up day one and says, I am a witness of this, and so are we. And Peter now gets in a role. And he says to this very Jewish, very Orthodox, very religious audience, Jesus, verse 33, is exalted to the right hand of God, and Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. This is, I can't even describe this in modern language. This is scandal beyond scandal of, like, you're telling me, Peter, that Jesus, whose, whose dad was a carpenter, and we're not even sure if his mom had an affair to have him in the first place, who comes from Nazareth, is at the right hand of God? See, the Bible, to a Jew, the right hand of God is the place of all authority and power. When an ancient king extended his right hand, it meant life, death, war, blessing, peace. It's the sign and place of ultimate decision. And Peter, this Galilean uneducated fisherman, is saying that Jesus who had, by the way, been executed 53 days earlier on a Roman cross, is now seated at the right hand of God and is over and in charge of the whole universe. And and, and don't miss the scandal of this. And then Peter says, he has the gall to say, and oh, just so you know, the Father has given Jesus the Spirit. And Jesus is pouring out the Spirit right now. The living sign of his kingship is we're all speaking in tongues that actually you can understand the good news of God. And by the way, Jesus is in charge of everyone, including you. Like, insanity, if it's not true. And then it happens. Peter says, therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, he points to it, you've crucified him, both Lord and Christ. And by the way, right there is the very first holy, universal, small c Catholic confession of the church. Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Now let me go back to the beginning. Peter starts preaching, right, to this very Jewish audience. And as he's preaching, he quotes Joel 2, and Joel 2 says this, anyone who calls upon the name of the, what? Say it loud. Lord, 
will be saved. Anyone who calls upon the name of the God of Israel will be saved. And now Peter stands up and says, Jesus is what? Lord. Like, unbelievable that you now, Peter, are equating Jesus from Nazareth in some equal or same fashion as, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of the universe, the God that met Moses at the burning bush, the same God that filled Solomon. You're saying that Jesus is Lord too? Are you saying that Jesus is the Messiah and God in flesh and Lord of all and the King of the Jews? Peter's like, yes, yes. Now this would sit so heavy in this moment. The air would become thick, choked with either anger or conviction. I love what David Gooding once wrote. They had murdered God's son, this audience, and he offered them his spirit. They crucified the second person of the Trinity. He offered them the third. They had thrown God's son out of the vineyard in hope of getting the vineyard. Now he was inviting them to receive God's spirit, not just into their vineyard, into their tribe, into their people, but into their hearts. I tried imagining this week what would happen in this very moment, the words hanging in the air, what would happen next. Remember, this much of this crowd is the same crowd that called for Jesus' killing. Mob violence would be a logical outcome because Jesus was killed for claiming these same things, and Peter even went farther. So were they all about to be taken out? Or would people just say, these people are crazy and buzzed and under the tank and too much alcohol? Or would there be acceptance? And if there is acceptance, would the same holy fire that fell on Mary and, and, and Martha and, and all these other people there, would it fall on them? Well, when the people heard this, verse 32, 37, sorry, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said to the other apostles, and said to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I'd never sat on that phrase, cut in the heart, before. What happens when you get a cut? Who's got a paper cut in the last year? Just raise your hand. What happens to your body? If it's just a paper cut, let alone a really serious gash, some of you have had really bad incidences with cutting things, and I don't want to know. That freaks me out. But here's the point. Right when you cut yourself, your whole body goes into shock. Your whole body lets you know, like that, something is wrong. And a paper cut's so bad because you can't see it, but your whole body's going, why did you do that, you stupid person, right? Ah, but listen, it says that they were literally in their souls cut, that their whole spiritual body went, something is wrong, And what they're really starting to wrestle with is, is there any way out of this? Because if this is true, then we've murdered the Messiah we've been waiting for. So of course we're done on Judgment Day. God's going to kill us all. I remember one of the most vivid memories of my childhood, I've shared it before, was I was a boy, only child, intense. You can imagine that I was a lot to handle. And I destroyed my room one day. Anyone have boys? And you've seen this before? Just Lego everywhere. Anyone stepped on Lego this week? Anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, But Lego and toy soldiers and my bed was a mess and my clothes were everywhere. And my mom said, John, you get in that room and clean up. And I remember walking into the doorway and I just remember looking And suddenly panicking and freezing because it was so messy. I had no clue where to start and what to do. And I literally froze in anxiety because I did not know. And my mom very gently came beside me, put her hand on me, and she said, John, I said, Mom, I really don't know where to start. I need to clean, but it's just too overwhelming. And she said, you start by doing this. This is what's happening 
that these people suddenly realize the mess of their own doing is so gargantuan and so monumental, there is no way unless someone shows them what to do that they can get out. And Peter stands up and he says, oh, I've got an answer. See, there's good news, great news. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is how you get out of a mess of your own doing. You repent. Now, what's repentance? Well, let me bring it this way. Anxiety is when you know something is wrong, but you might, know not, might not know the source. You, you feel something. You can literally feel it in your chest. I know something is wrong. I am having anxiety. But guilt is when you actually can know the source of your anxiety spiritually. And repentance is when you say, I just don't know something is wrong. I actually know the source of something that's giving me anxiety. And in this case, not all cases anxiety, but in this case... I have done something personally wrong. So repentance isn't just saying I know something is wrong. It is I am now going to turn away from that and ask for help. Repentance is a 180. The second thing is faith, informed trust. I will look to the person who's going to help me. His name is Jesus. I don't fully understand him, but I put faith in him and what he's done to help me out. And the evidence of repentance and the evidence of faith in Jesus is baptism, the outward symbol of the accepted repentance and faith. Like we say here, it is a wedding ring. This wedding ring does not make me married. This wedding ring is an outward symbol saying I am unavailable to all the ladies of the world. It is saying that I'm given myself fully to one woman and I will be faithful to her. Baptism is the outward evidence of the inward work. And Peter says you repent and you have faith, you're going to evidence it if it's true, and you're going to be given the best gift you can ever get. His name is the Holy Spirit, and you as Jews know all about him. And that's why Peter, sorry, Paul said later, this is what you actually got when you believed you were home free, signed, stilled, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. Well, Peter keeps going, verse 39, the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for anyone whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. 3,000 were added to the number that first day. In one day, the church was born with 150 people praying. Within hours, 3,000 Orthodox Jews had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, and they had done it from all over the world. Spirit move. And by the way, just so no one misunderstands, they weren't saying that if you were not baptized, you were not saved. Notice it says that those who believe the message then were baptized. Baptism happens after you say yes. It's the affirmation of the yes. They're not trusting in another moral code or a moral religious system. They're trusting in a living, loving person. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost. You say, okay, John, that was a lot. I thought you were going to say this was easy. Here it is. Here's the A plus B equals C. You want to know the gospel? You want to know the good news of our movement? Want to know what was declared day one? Do you want to know what every single church on earth, if it's faithful, believes? Here it is. Jesus sums up the whole Old Testament. Jesus was a real man whose life was marked by miracles. Jesus was really crucified. It was God's plan all along for him to die like that. Jesus was physically risen from the dead. Jesus is king and he's reigning right now. And everyone one day or now will have to admit he is who he is. All humans are in sin. All of us are corrupt. 
And remember the original audience, even the most religious, reading their Bible every day, praying in the right direction every day, they are corrupt too because all of us are guilty. All of us need a Savior. And Jesus, who's not just a man but God in flesh, has come to set us free. If you accept Jesus, you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're forgiven of your sins. You can join God's real movement. And actually, no matter your history or your background, religious or irreligious, no matter intellect or less, God is holy. God is love. God has not remained silent. God has reached out. And anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, whose name is Jesus, will be saved. See, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. So here's the first thing. Yeah, you can clap for that. It's great. It's good. Okay. So here's... A few things just to mention as we think, number one, whether you've done church for years or not, let me say this to you. Number one, is that the gospel you believe as a Christian? Because lots of people are saying lots of things are the gospel and they're not. That's the gospel, day one. And number two, don't be ashamed of the gospel. I I just want to say this. Paul said in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of this because it has the literal power of God to save both Jews and non-Jews. And so I want to encourage all of you, whether you feel super equipped or not, do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is from heaven. It is born of heaven and it can change hearts. Your job, my job, our job is just to witness and say what it is. But for some of you today, some of you online, some of us gathered here, some of you at North, you're Theophilus. Or actually, you're actually the people in the crowd And here's what I need to ask you right now. What has God been saying to you at this moment? I want to say this again unashamedly. We don't shrink from the resurrection in this movement. It is the place of our validation. And we do believe in exclusive truth claims. We do. I know we all live in a very postmodern, very educated, very pluralistic age that teaches us that truth is subjective. Many of you even sitting here today in your heart of hearts deny absolute truth. And most of us functionally believe that truth is only discovered through experience and that it stops being truth and the experience changes. But the Christian faith for 2,000 years in all of its forms absolutely says no, that's not true. Our movement will not skirt around the issue of sin or spiritual corruption or our separation from God or our complicity and also is absolutely clear about the love of God. Peter's message is that we all know something is wrong with us. You could call it spiritual anxiety. But that's never enough. Because every human being on earth knows something's wrong in the human family. Just turn on the news or go to Thanksgiving with your family sometime. Like, we all know it. But anxiety, spiritual anxiety, that, oh, something's wrong, isn't enough. The Bible says, Peter wrote, Jesus proclaimed, you have to say, I am guilty. Not just something's wrong. I am the reason why something is wrong. Me. I have sinned and affronted a holy God. And in that moment of humility, not humiliation, in that moment of humility, that's the place where Christianity becomes real. Because suddenly you say, I need a savior. Make no mistake about it, the Christian worldview, we're very pessimistic about the human condition. 
We don't believe we're born good. We believe we're born in sin. Fundamentally. But we are unbelievably hopeful because God is love and God is grace and God has decided to come back and intervene. God has walked into our messy room and put his hand on us and said, this is how you do it. And here's the great news I want to proclaim. When you say yes to Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit of God. And when the Holy Spirit moves into you, he can transform the inside of you and change you out. He can take the most hostile, barren, desert-like conditions and make them bloom again. One person wrote so powerfully in the mid-70s, the question is not before us today, shall I repent? That's beyond doubt. The question is, shall I repent now? when it might save me, or will I put it off to eternity when my repentance will actually turn out to be my judgment? Paul, who once murdered Christians and hated us with everything that he was, who met Jesus, wrote these words in Romans 10, 9, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be reconciled, saved, changed. And so here's what I'm going to say very simply. To any person within the sound of my voice, who is Theophilus or the people in the crowd? Has God cut you to the heart? Honestly, have you, have you felt God say to you, this is you? And now it is time, like those people did 2,000 years ago, one of those 3,000, to cry out, John, what am I supposed to do? Here it is. It is time for you to repent and have faith in Jesus and evidence it in time with baptism. And so if this is you, I want you, I'm inviting you to pray this prayer and pray it with everything that you are because this is the moment where death turns to life. And if you're a Christian, you know what to be praying right now because we've all been here. So pray this. If you're a Theophilus or that person, that seeker, that skeptic, or you're a person who's been in church your whole life and realized you've never really embraced him. Lord Jesus Christ, I am a sinner. I'm guilty. I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that you were here and you died for my sins and you really rose from the dead. I turned from running my own life. I repent. And I ask you to run it to be my Savior and Lord of my life. Jesus, send your Holy Spirit into me now. I invite you to come into my heart and my life. I choose now to trust and follow you as my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. If you prayed that this morning, if you came with someone, you tell them. If you're watching online, you get a hold of us in any way you can, social media. If you didn't come with someone this morning and you've prayed that, after the service here and at North will be people to pray with. But this is the beginning of life for you. Last thought. We as a church are responsible to witness. We are not responsible to change people's hearts. That's God's job. But let me just say what I've said already. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel of Jesus Christ changed you and it can change every person in Durham too. This is the good news. This is the A plus B equals C. Aren't you thankful this morning that Jesus came for all of us? Could anyone say amen to that today? Amen. Let's stand together and let's worship. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.